We like emerge up. <laughs> Karan, we're live. <laughs> <laughs> we should emerge. Uh, what a start. The yeah. resurrection episode. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, episode number 21. That's, that's a lot of weeks. That's, mm. that's 21 full weeks. Welcome to another episode of Punch Card mm. Investing, everyone. And we have a very special one going over Moni's Rise best investment, or at least some of them. There's many to pick from. Um, and that should be a good source of learning and kind of seeing how to potentially approach a potential stock deal. And just, it's always good to study up on what the greats are doing or have done since there's usually a lot of nuggets you can pick up. But before we get into that, and after you guys smash the like button and the subscribe button, since I would always go to helping out the channel and checking out that Discord in the description below too, uh, we promised a giveaway at the end of last episode for anyone who, well, not anyone, for the best joke that was left on last episode's uh, comment section. And uh, we kind of buried it towards the end of the episode inadvertently, so uh, we didn't get as many jokes as we would have liked, but we did get a decent turnout. So uh, we're going to take a moment to go over these jokes and, and, and see what we got here and, and pick out a winner. Um, we, we scanned them, and they all seem to be decently appropriate. So, <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's dive into that. So... Um, let me share the screen. All right. <laughs> we got Jesse down here. Valley investing joke. Are you able to zoom in at all, Jack? Or yeah, no? let's try. Yeah, that'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Oh, dear. Whoa. <laughs> oh, <there we> go. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Jesse, who's changed his thumbnail, I've noticed. Um, Valley nice. investing joke. Why is Smucker's stock falling? Their supply is spread too thin. Wow, Jesse, fantastic. That is a great dad joke. I, I don't think Jesse's a dad, but he's he's ready. He he's well ready. All right, well, we'll, we'll note that one. Uh, Questy is uh, insulting me. All right. <laughs> um, another one from Jesse. We got a couple from Jesse here. Um, what's the best investment that's uh, when there's high inflation? Balloons. Jesus, Jesse, you're just going wow. off today. Mm-hmm. One I more from Jesse. Sound effects. <laughs> what makes airlines such a bad investment? They all come down eventually. <laughs> My goodness gracious, you're just going off with these puns. It's right, funny I, because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's also true. Just Jesse yeah. got Warren Buffett this year uh, in like one month. His one month trade on airlines it was a disaster. Uh, that was last year already. Yeah, I guess that was a full year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, geez, time flies. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> time <Okay>. flies. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can't help myself. I'm do we have more than one sound effect, Jack? Or, uh, yeah, we do. Uh, <laughs> let's see. That's kind of the puns. That's one, the right? good one. That's yeah, okay, I don't want to hear okay. the other ones. Let's see. Here we go. Why did the investor keep throwing all his money in the river? He wanted to see some cash flow before investing. That is beautiful. Brilliant. My goodness mm. gracious. Another great one. Um, you got to love it. We got a lot of puns coming here. This this is pretty good stuff. Um, I think we've got a few more. Oh, here we go. Joke. Who's hotter, the mistress or the wife? It doesn't matter. They're both wealth destruction. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. That's savage. Well, it's no wonder we all have no female viewers. So. Yeah, I think we're like ninety nine percent male or something like that. Yeah, we gotta we gotta correct that demographic. A lot of room for growth. Yeah, we we're, we're only we've only got half the population. This is a right. paying attention. This is a poor attitude right here. We we got we gotta lighten it up, guys. Come on. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
Another one from Jesse. He man, he just he really wants this one. Clearly, value messing joke. Tesla's valuation. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Jesse, so savage. All right, we'll note that one too. Um, I bite all the coins that I come across every day. I get from my transactions, and now I have a lot of bitcoins. Wow. Yeah, that one's kind of flat, got to say. And, and I mean, this is an I a, liked it. I a liked lot of it. puns. But, you know, it's an A for effort. Um, hmm. Here's Questy. I think you were insulting me earlier, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt on your joke. Let's see here. Oh, man. This oh, is a bit oh, oh, here we go. You just want to give the benefit of the doubt? Yeah. <laughs> Can we just skip to the punchline or yeah. is it not going to make sense? Once upon a time, a man assisted in a very small town spread the word to the townspeople the man was willing to buy monkeys for $100 each. The people knew there, there were many monkeys in the nearby forest and immediately started catching them. Thousands of monkeys were bought at a price of $100 and placed in a large cage. Unfortunately for the townspeople, the supply of mon- monkeys quickly diminished to a point where it took many hours to catch even one. When the new man announced he would now buy monkeys at a price of $200 per monkey, the town's residents redoubled their efforts to catch monkeys. But after a few days, the monkeys were so hard to find that the townspeople stopped trying to catch any more. The man responded by announcing that he would buy monkeys at $500 after he, re- he returned with additional cash from a trip to the big city. While the man was gone, his assistant told the villagers one by one, I will secretly sell you my boss's monkeys for $350, and when he returns from the city, you can sell them to him for $500 each. The villagers bought every single monkey, and they never saw the man or his assistant ever again. More, more of a cautionary tale. Yeah, it's more like yeah. wisdom. <laughs> I, think, I think that was from one of the old Berkshire Hathaway letters, actually. Yeah, that, that, that's yeah. is that like a chain letter scam? Is that what that is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a joke, but I mean, yeah, good. That's a good little nugget of wisdom. I don't know what to give mm-hmm. it, but uh, I don't have a sound effect for wisdom. So nice job. <laughs> um. Here's one from uh, Shashi. Shashi, say that three times fast. Um, remember the late Barton Briggs, uh, Barton Briggs observation, a bull market is like sex. It feels best just before it ends. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Hope, well, I don't I mean, know with, how to react to that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to react either because uh, the party will never end with all the central bank printing, right? Yeah, so maybe it'll just, we'll just have an uh, indefinite bull market, right? we've we've unlocked the code like it's just going to keep getting better don't worry an, an indefinite orgasmic experience is yes, that what exa- we're going for exactly exactly i think i think that's how uh, tom described your q <laughs> uh, a couple days that ago that was a great q and a time sounds so great and i think we're at the top of our yep okay last one also shashi an old wall street joke gets close to our experience is this like the title all right Customer, thanks for putting me in XYZ stock at five. I hear it's up to 18. Yes, and that's just the beginning. In fact, the company's doing so well now that it's an even better buy at 18 than than it was when you made your purchase. Customer, damn. I knew I should have waited. I'll give it a duck. (laughs) I like that. That's a pretty good one. I like that one. Uh, who? I mean, this one has the most. So do we likes. have to pick a winner now? Yeah, we got to pick a winner. I, that that one has the most likes, and I do like it. 
But I mean, I mean, we had a solid effort from Jesse down here with like seven puns. What do we mm. think, guys? Jesse that, was playing the odds, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. But I don't, I don't know if it paid off. It almost. It was like shareholder dilution. It made it made his jokes kind of. <laughs> <laughs> he had some good ones. Should we though. take jokes from the comments if someone has a joke here? Yeah, anyone in the like chat, it. you have thirty seconds to one up any of those Ooh. jokes. If you don't do it. I mean, we got. I think we got to give it to Shashi uh, unless we yeah, have any uh, objections. I'll go with that. I'm on board with that. All right, I'm we have twenty five seconds remaining uh, to to yeah. one up Shashi because that was a good one um, mm. for our winner. It's gonna right have here. to be an. It's gonna have to be an absolute zinger to to one up that. And you don't have much time, guys. Yeah, you got about like 10 seconds left, and I'm seeing no nothing in the comments, though. I know we do have a bit of a lag stocks, with, with the chat. Stocks never go down. Not bad, not bad. Uh, ooh. Kathy wants DC. <laughs> That's <Ooh>. hot. <laughs> we got a sound effect for that, Jack, or not? Yeah, yeah. Um, to, uh, to Clayton here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a good one, Clayton. But you know what? Uh, we, Shashi played by the rules, made the comment mm. on the video. Uh, we'll give you a tip of the cap, Clayton. But Shashi, you are the winner. Congratulations. Let's give a round of applause for Shashi for that valiant effort. Great job, everyone, on all your jokes. And now that we're 10 minutes into the stream, <laughs> uh, let's get into Horizon. Uh, but Shashi, um, be sure to reach out to one of us on Instagram and uh, we'll so we can get your address and we can send over uh, some punch card merch for you, um, preferably to Karan because he actually runs the shop. Ooh, so. We have Shashi in and the shop. Shashi's here. All right. Ah, there, hey, Shashi. So uh, reach out to one of us, please, and uh, we'll get you your gear. And thank you for participating and for supporting the channel. We always appreciate that. Okay, I, I'm done talking for a bit. Who wants to kick off uh, with a good uh, O'Brien investment? And we could talk about that. Uh, I'll volunteer if no one else wants to. I'll um I'm gonna I'm gonna move this conversation from investing jokes to funeral homes just to <laughs> just to lighten the mood. Dead in the mood. <laughs> Gotta be a sound yeah. effect for that. Just, just wah, to get everyone. Wah, in the mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need a soundboard. I'm using YouTube clips. <laughs> yeah, okay. All oh, right. Man. I gotta get I gotta get back in the zone after that. So yeah. I'm gonna talk about I'm gonna talk about my, one of Monish Prabhai's favorite topics, which is funeral homes. So um it's actually something you wrote about in the Dando Investor. Great book if you haven't read it before. Um, and this was an investment in a company called Stewart Enterprises. So this is from the early 2000s. Um, he made this investment. Um, and basically, this is this one of my favorite Monash Pabrai investment stories um, because of some of the lessons it kind of teaches. Uh, it's not his most spectacular return by any means. It wasn't a 10x or you know, one of these like Indian hundred baggers he bought and had stock certificates in his drawer for so many years or whatever that story was. <laughs> um, I think it was a double in a fairly short space of time, but I think there's some um, interesting lessons in there, particularly with the whole sort of like risk versus uncertainty, not necessarily being the same thing that, that I quite enjoy. So um, the backstory with Stuart Enterprises is basically Monish Pabrai was flicking through value line as he kind of liked to do at the time to sort of screen for interesting stocks. And I think there were around 1,600 stocks that were picked up in value line in the early 2000s. And consistently, there were a couple of companies that were trading at like three times earnings that consistently just showed up week after week in the screen for the lowest PE. And one of those was Stuart Enterprises. And basically what had happened there is in the 90s, it became sort of the fashionable thing to do um, was to 
um, basically roll up all these kind of mum and dad um, funeral homes, basically, and try to basically like grow a public company through constantly doing all these acquisitions to grow the underlying earnings and so on. Um, you can probably imagine funeral services isn't a particularly fast growing industry, but it is a very stable one, <laughs> I think. If we had Frank on, his, he'd argue that his beloved KPG and accounting is a very stable business, but I think funeral services probably beats him out a little bit on that one. Death so, and taxes, yeah. baby. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically what happened is um, a lot of funeral companies had been doing this uh, roll-up strategy and just constantly making acquisitions for a long period of time through the 90s, and a lot of it was done through through debt, so not a lot of it was funded through well, a little bit of cash, but um, there wasn't a lot of stock issuance going on. It was mainly debt. It was mainly cash and, and debt, and there are a handful of companies that Pabri actually mentions in this book. So there's not only Stuart Enterprises. There's a business called Lowen. There's also Service Corp and Carriage Services. I think Carriage Services is, is still a public company. And um, as Pabri describes it, the music stopped when Lowen went bankrupt. So they had done the strategy so aggressively that they, they couldn't meet their debt obligations and and they went bankrupt and that kind of soured the whole sector really. Um, all of these stocks basically tanked like in unison and Stuart Enterprises specifically went from about $28 a share to $2 per share. So went down a massive amount very quickly. Um, and that's when Pabri got interested. And um, the, the reason that this is sort of a risk versus uncertainty being not necessarily the same thing in this um, particular business is quite interesting because like I say, the underlying business is actually quite certain. Like, you know, Pabri often talks about you don't necessarily know who's going to die. <laughs> like you don't know who your customers are going to be in a funeral services business, but you can bet um, pretty safely that, you know, statistically X number of people are probably going to die every year and you're going to have some business from that. Um, so Pabri basically wanted to understand, um, you know, how the debt um, played into this uncertainty and whether there was like a risk uncertainty mismatch and he had the potential to to make an investment. So this is some of the figures for Stuart Enterprises in, in 2000. So they had about $930 million in debt uh, and they had $500 million of debt coming due in 2002. So had about two years to kind of meet those debt obligations. Uh Monish Pabri sort of figured out that they were probably likely to produce free cash flow of about $150 million between 2000 and 2002 when that debt payment was due. But that still left a gap of about $350 million of you know funds that they had to find from somewhere. So he basically came up with a few different scenarios of how he thought this could play out. And bear in mind through, through each of these, Stuart is trading at $2 per share. Um, I should actually also say that the tangible book value of Stuart Enterprises was $4 a share at the time. And this was um, kind of hard assets. It's not like goodwill or anything in their book value. This is like real tangible book value. And it was on the books at cost. So, you know, some of the cemeteries and funeral homes and so on that they had were potentially like undervalued even on the books for Stuart. So that was sitting at $4 a share book, uh, per share in book value. So the way he saw it was basically um, the first scenario he thought Stuart could do to try and meet these debt obligations was to essentially sell off some of the funeral homes that they just acquired. So um, for the most part, they'd been acquiring these for like eight times earnings. He thought that, you know, in a fire sale, they could sell them back to the previous owners or other people in that area, maybe four times earnings to raise cash. So um, 
he put basically a, a one in four, a 25% probability on that happening. Uh, the next scenario he looked at was he basically said Stuart Enterprises has actually got pretty solid cash flows if you kind of forget about the debt for a second. So perhaps they can refinance this with another lender, even if they do have to um, pay a slightly high interest rate. Maybe they can kick the can down the road a little bit in terms of having to meet a big like lump sum debt payment. Um, he has a second another scenario around debt as well. Um, and the actually second to last scenario he thought was that basically Stuart could go bankrupt and in which case, you know, basically all of these funeral homes and cemeteries that rolled up would be sold at, you know, fire sale prices, debt would be paid and maybe something is left over for shareholders. And then he also put a 1% uh, probability on a, a meteor basically coming out of space and just destroying all the assets of Stuart Enterprises. <laughs> so and and that particular scenario, he he thought that the equity would obviously be worth zero. Um, but across all the other scenarios, he had anywhere from two to four dollars a share, basically. So yes, it's very uncertain what you know the what scenario is actually going to play out for Stuart Enterprises, but in all cases except a medial hitting earth, um, it's going to be more than the current share price of $2. So that's the way he was looking at the investment. The way it actually played out is Stuart Enterprises actually ended up selling some of their international businesses, and this is something that Pabrai hadn't even thought was a possibility, but they actually sold off a few of their international um, funeral homes that actually weren't producing any cash flow. So they, they met all their debt obligations um, without sacrificing any cash flow for the underlying business. The stock um, pretty quickly shot to $4. Pabri sold out around $4. And then it hovered between kind of 6 and 8 for a few years after that. And um, if you look at a business like Carriage Services, which I believe ended up buying Stewart Enterprises, um, at that is a business that trades at like 40 times earnings today. You know, thinking back to this business trading at three times earnings, it's kind of crazy to see that sort of multiple expansion. But um, yeah, I've been talking long enough. So so, so that's my story from much. Right, that's one of my favorite investments from him. Awesome. Where, where did you find all that info about Stuart Enterprises and Pabri's thesis is, on it? Confidential. That is, all, that is all in the Dando Investor. Okay. I reread a chapter in bed this morning, having my morning coffee to prepare for this. So (laughs) there you go. Good. Yeah. Garrett Services at 40 times earnings, really? I'm surprised, like 40 times earnings for a funeral. That's very surprising. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When I looked a couple of years ago, I'd be trading at like 20 times earnings. I mean, these are incredibly stable businesses, assuming that you don't have like all this crazy debt stuff like what's happening in the 90s. So, I can see people treating it maybe even a little bit like a bond style investment in that way where it's like, yeah, yeah maybe I'm not going to get a particularly high return, but it's super stable and I'm happy to kind of park money there. I don't exactly why I know why it's shot up to shot up to 40 times earnings. Maybe it's some sort of like COVID play. People are getting in on short term. I don't quite know, but it's Kathy Wooden today. It's Kathy Wooden. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> the inflows, the funeral stocks are. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to look at a stock chart for it. It's up like 50% higher than the previous all-time high just recently. Yeah. Yeah, and that stock chart actually goes back to the 90s. So you can see this like plummet from Mm -hmm. the 90s into 2000 and then the recovery through to 2002 that um, Pabri was kind of getting in on. 
Yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. Shall we move to another Let's, one? Let's do it. How about you, Karan? You ready to rock and roll? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're very blurry, Karan. I have no idea why. I always have some technical <laughs> difficulty, you know. <laughs> right. Um, so the investment that I wanted to talk about was SunTech. And I've always kind of admired Babra's uh, investment in real estate because when we look at Racist, when we look at Seritage, when we look at uh, even SunTech, I think in all three cases, we're able to see that he's able to get in the company at a price where he has a margin of safety and the business is kind of transforming in all three cases and eventually the margin of safety is probably going to be in the quality of the business so that's kind of one common theme that i just noticed between his real estate investments something about suntech um the background about suntech is that um so back in 2016 india was going through this um new law called demonetization, where the largest two notes that the country had, which was a 500 rupee note and the 1000 rupee note, were both considered as not as legal tender. And this is largely a cash-based economy, right? So if you take out the largest two notes, it's it's kind of like sucking the oxygen out of the room, you know, for the entire economy. And the companies that were hit the hardest were the real estate companies. Because typically what happens in India is that whenever there's a real estate transaction, a portion of that transaction is done on paper, but maybe say half or like 40% of the total value is actually transferred in cash. And people tend to do that because of tax reasons in a way. And uh, yeah, basically it's, it's tax evasion. So it's called black money. And that was kind of what the government was trying to do to reduce the amount of black money and cash transactions in the economy. And uh, almost, I think he mentioned that 90% of all real estate companies went out of business because of this um, new law that had come about. SunTech was one of those companies that always did things by the book. And that's why rather than being hit by this law, they were beneficiaries of this new uh, amendment. And um, Pabdrai, what he did was he bought as much as he could of the company. He bought 9.99%. From memory, I think 10% is a max, right? Um, are you guys familiar with it? Yeah, so yeah. Um, he bought right around 9.99% of the company, and I think he still holds it. And uh, his average buy price, I think I'll just share the graph here. Um Yeah. You guys see the yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he bought in right around here, at around hundred, and very quickly it went up all the way I think to five hundred or so. And he didn't sell out. He's still holding it. That's like a and year, then, or what is that time frame? Sorry. No, from two thousand sixteen to two thousand eighteen. So okay, two years. Two years. Yeah. <clears throat> And uh, since then, in March, it came pretty close to around the price that Pabra is buying at, like around 50% higher or so. But since then, oops, since then, SunTech has become a much better company because of the deals that they've been able to set up. 
and it was kind of a good buying opportunity back in March. He couldn't, I guess. I think if he could, he would probably buy in mo- like a lot more. But since he's already at the ten percent threshold, he kind of just held it. So, yeah, yeah, cool. It's interesting. Managed um, Price seems to have done a lot of these real estate, like liquidation value type plays over his career. Even Stuart Enterprises is uh, has that sort of element to it as well, a little bit. It, it's a good, it makes for a good foundation, and at least with real estate in particular, it um, it's how do I say it? It's like got a fairly concrete way of like valuing it. Generally, it's just based on the income of the property, and you will divide that by some sort of cap rate, which is usually decently easy to tell if there's a lot of real estate to go around or you have a relatively liquid market, and then that's kind of your basis, generally speaking. Um, Whereas maybe with a more complicated sort of, I don't know, tech enterprise where it can be very difficult to guess what the valuation of that company is because it depends on so many different things. Whereas with real estate, it's just it's it just seems like it's a slightly more straightforward business than a lot of others because it's just renting out space. And as long as the space is decent and that can kind of be a signal for how stable those cash flows are. Um, that would be my thought on why uh, why that's made up. A base mm-hmm. for him yeah it's more it's of a, a special situation real estate that he goes it, for it is yeah. yeah but it revolves around that sort of idea like at some point you know where the stability is probably going to come from it, it's a little bit more predictable than like a tech company or something like that in, in some cases granted like there's plenty of uncertainty with a with like a special situation that he might be dealing with because there's always a chance that things don't work but um, I think it's a lot easier to picture the end result versus some other more like innovative type companies. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's much more obvious to see where the, the floor is like worst, worst case scenario. What's this thing worth? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like if you, if you had to liquidate tomorrow, like mm. you could figure it out. Um, and if it's, and it's usually pretty easy to tell if it's totally insolvent. <laughs> so, uh, whereas it can be difficult with, with a lot of other companies, I think um, I'm speaking super generally. There's plenty of exceptions, but maybe that's why. I feel like also when he gets into any of these real estate companies, he gets in with a huge percentage of the company. So I think with Seritage, he owns somewhere around 12, 11% mm-hmm. of the total company. Racist, again, one third of the company. Um, with Suntech, 10% of the company. So it's literally like he becomes one of the partners. Yeah, and when he goes around talking about the company, you know, it kind of is a bit of advertising, a little bit of promotion, and it does attract you know other investors who are obviously following him, and those people get into the stock. The stock price goes up. Yeah, there's does, a bit he of, do, does he do any like more active type things? Like when he takes a sizable position, when he's allowed to, um, does he take a more activist role? put himself on the board or anything like that. I don't think he's interested in that. It's not how he wants to spend his time. Yeah. I I thought not, but I was wondering if there's any examples uh, to to the contrary. Cause like Buffett's placed himself on the board before too. And I don't think that's really his style, but at least nowadays, maybe back, back in the day, many decades ago, might've been more that way. But I think he does um, have, I think he does have a bit of influence, although not obviously like directly, you know, on the surface. I'm sure but he, he definitely does yeah. talk to the CEO. Like with Suntech, at least what I've seen is, um, so whenever they have these Dakshana Q&As and everything, 
for one of them, the CEO of Suntech was there with him. So, you know, it's like there's a lot of back and forth between them. Obviously, he's going to be introducing him to other people. And then, I you know, like, the connections formed. I think Edelweiss did something similar with like yeah. a joint yeah, Q&A. Yeah. Even with races, I think they've, they're planning on listing in the U.S., right? Or they have, they're in the OTC market or something. Yeah, I think they got shut down. Is it? Okay. Yeah. But maybe I thought he's pushing had a bit of a push on that, you know, like encouraging them to have another list. I'm not aware of that, but it's possible. Um, yeah, I wanted to mention, Tom, with with yours, the funeral services business, obviously, um, you know, it was actually a funeral services business. Pabri also talks about like the funeral services business as a type of business that feed yeah. on, you know, kind of dying companies or yeah, feed yeah. on death. So, uh, which Seritage is one of those companies as well. So uh, there's multiple ways to look at the funeral services business. Um, you guys, should I jump in? Do it, Brad. Go for it. Let's go for it. So when you guys said, all right, the topic is best investments from Pabrai, I immediately thought of his two 100 baggers. Um, just be, I mean, it was before the fund started. So it's, you know, uh, but in, I think it was 95, he started investing and he decided, all right, I'm going to basically buy 10 different stocks with a hundred thousand dollars each. He had a million dollars, I think from maybe a partial sale of his business, TransTech. And um, so one of those bets was CMGI. Uh, So he put a hundred thousand dollars into CMGI and CMGI, I'm just going to read a quick little snippet about it. Uh, now it's called Steel Connect, a company that provides supply chain management services to software companies. During the dot-com bubble, the company, which was then known as CMGI, had a market cap of $41 billion, uh, and owned the naming rights to the new home stadium of the New England Patriots. That was a nugget that, that I was completely unaware of. Um, but I guess, you know, Pabrai bought in 95, he was able to sell CMGI. I think he says within 5% of the all time high for that company. Um, part of the company had, you know, it was like a, a startup incubator and obviously in the dot-com bubble and the dot-com boom, you know, there was just so much value that was being placed on that aspect of the business. So, you know, ever since then, you know, Pabrai has had a taste of these 100 baggers, right? Another one was a company in India, Satyam Computers. And, you know, with with only $100,000, I mean, it took the fund from a million to 10 million, just just that one bet. Um, But he's, you know, he's thinking, oh, if I can just find another 100 bagger where I can put a 50 million bet or a 70 million bet, right? The fund is somewhere around 700 million these days. So a 10% bet, you know, would, would put the fund well into the billions of dollars of assets under management. So, uh, you know, I did a little research on CMGI. It's really hard to, to really get a sense for what his investment thesis was for the company. I don't think he's talked much about it other than it was, 
uh, a hundred bagger, but um, yeah. Yeah. The, the stock ahead, chart is insane. It, it wasn't a hundred bagger insane. for long. It did. It looks like it might have done a reverse hundred bagger. Pretty, yeah, pretty I wonder if you can pull well. that up. Uh, I can. Yeah. If, if you exactly. There, pull it up. If uh, I don't have it up right now, if you share your screen, I can put it up though. If you have it in front of you, any uh, one of I'm, you. Yeah, I've got it. Hang on. Um, Do it, Tom. Suspense is killing us. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. If he sold within 5% of the top, that's, well, that's just luck, isn't it? But <laughs> a lot of that. That's crazy. Reddit was formed in 1999, right? What's that? His fund was formed in 2000. Yeah, that's the right time to form it. Right after that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Well, like seventy thousand percent. Yeah, I mean the the beautiful thing he talks about he talked about this recently. So he's tried to start this company called Digital Disruptors, and it was, you know, one of his biggest failures in terms of you know businesses that he poured money into and and didn't work out. Uh, the thing he really, you know, it's a failure in one sense, but in another sense, it allowed him to see that the pop, the bubble pop was just around the corner. He could see it a few months more than everyone else. And so with the start of the fund, he was able to sidestep the whole dot-com bubble and did really well in the first couple of years, I think really focused on gram type investments. Um, did like 60 or 70% the first couple of years of the fund. And so without that experience, he probably wouldn't have seen that. So I thought that was interesting as well. And I will say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to plug racist any more than Pabri already has, but, you know, he said he thinks it could be the first 100 bagger uh, for Pabri funds. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah. The, the trouble is he could only get like 1% of his book into it though, right? That is a problem. So yeah. With 7 million. Yeah. Which is 1%. I mean, it all helps. A hundred bagger with one percent sure. is still pretty I good. Mean, if, he, if, he, you know, if it's a hundred bagger and he doubles his fund size, that's that's yeah, not yeah. a terrible outcome, right? Yeah, I would, I would, I would take that. Yeah, that's true. no arguments right. there. It's crazy to think that that, that would act, that's that would one percent could be a double of the hundred bagger. It's just it's nuts. Mm. <laughs> what do you got, Jack? Oh, shall we move on to Fiat Chrysler slash? Oh yes, yes. Um, I think this may be like the, the biggest payoff that Pabri has ever had in Pabri funds for Fiat Chrysler. Do you guys know anything different? Mm, I think in dollars it probably is. Maybe not mm -hmm. percentage terms, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. it would be bigger yeah. if he had bought it back in 2012 or whenever. In, well, Jack will tell us about it. I won't, yeah. I won't spoil it. <laughs> no, no, yeah. He bought it back in 2012 around uh, yeah. six bucks a share. Now, Fiat had a number of subsidiaries, um, including Ferrari, um, and this the, the the general thesis that was that he was buying uh, it was it was one of his classic heads heads I win tails I don't lose much sort of bets, and that the company was bringing in cash, but relative to its price, it was like at a ridiculously low uh, price to earnings. 
um, to where just a couple of years later, after he opened his position up at like six bucks a share, uh, he was bringing in like a 50% dividend yield or something crazy like that um, just a few years later. Um, so clearly like the cash that the, the company was bringing in was way more um, compared to its price. But on top of that, sort of the free lottery ticket, if you will, was that Fiat spun off Ferrari and Ferrari was worth quite a bit at one of his spun off. Now he sold off right away. Had he held uh, his, his uh, Ferrari holdings, he probably would have made much more because it really ran up after that. Um, I forget the actual dollar amount of how much he made on this trade, but uh, many times his money to say the least, because it was like seven or eight times his money. Yeah. Um, When you factor in Ferrari, if you just look at Fiat, I think it was like a double by the time he fully closed out. Um, cause he held it up until 2020 actually. And then he switched into Seritage at that, at the same time by chance. Um, so, uh, from 2012 to 2020, there I got the, uh, here's Fiat 10 year chart. So he bought it around six bucks in, uh, 2012 is when he started. He did it in kind of a few batches, but this is the main batch 2012. And then if we go to, uh, when he closed it out last year, had he held it to today, if he might've recovered a bit, um, but Saradich has done pretty well, I think, since he spot it too. Um, but he closed out the position completely in Fiat at eight bucks. But that doesn't factor in the Ferrari spinoff, which was sold. Um, you can see this drop here in 2015. That's when Ferrari was spun off, and that's it's not like he lost that value. It was just transferred to another uh, asset, which he then sold off. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's the that's the general sort of trade, um, and it worked out very well for him because uh, he bought a company that was throwing off a lot of cash at a very cheap price, saw a lot of potential in the spinoff potential, uh, not just with Ferrari, but other entities as well. I think Maserati was one in there too. Um, Fiat Chrysler have a ton of subsidiaries because that's just how automotive companies work nowadays is they have many, many different subsidiaries under them. Um, but he saw a lot of potential there. And if all it took was really Ferrari to make this this uh, this trade very lucrative, and that's without even considering the fact that Fiat itself was a uh, lucrative trade too. So um, I always love the spinoff model. It's something that uh, like Bill Ackman, for example, we've talked about it before. At least Kron and I have talked about it a lot with uh, uh, his, his ability to spin off uh, Tim Hortons, for example, with restaurant brands. And that was super profitable. And uh, it, It's amazing how very large companies can be kind of caked within another company and are just completely overlooked. Um, and then when they are discovered, that's, you get a nice pop, um, ideally, as long as the market agrees. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. I think of, I think of PayPal and eBay. I don't yeah, know. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. It's just insane what PayPal has done since, since that split. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good example. Um, yeah. I wanted to chime in, Jack. It, what was really, uh, sort of curious to me was how Pabrag even got interested in Fiat Chrysler. He was looking at 13F filings and I think it was maybe Buffett and Einhorn or I forget exactly who was involved. Yeah. Yeah, They were buying in to like General Motors and maybe Fiat Chrysler. Mm -hmm. And so he looked at that. He, he didn't understand it. He, you know, his understanding of the auto industry, oh, this is just a terrible industry. Yep. Uh, and so he saw these investors buying in and it really kind of, you know, it got him to spend like three months just trying to understand everything that could be understood about the auto industry and how it was changing and all of that. That's really what led to this investment for him. And I also want to mention Guy Spear. I think 
did they buy in around the same time, Tom? I don't, I don't exactly remember. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they did. And, and Guy Spiera, <clears throat> excuse me, Guy Spiera still owns Ferrari. So he's been much mention, more hesitant yeah. to sell. And um, he sold a little bit of it, but he's still got a pretty good chunk, right? Yeah. So I'm just doing a bit of maths here. Um, and the, I'm pretty sure um, Pabrite's holding equated to about one and a half percent of the overall company at that time. So. Um, and one percent of Ferrari right now is yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. A market cap of forty billion. Um, yeah. So you'd be at um, four hundred million. Four hundred million just on just a Ferrari alone. Just Big, bigger. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so and that and wouldn't I, even, that doesn't include Fiat, which is its own holding that doubled. Um, yeah. From start to finish. Yeah, the the other thing with with Fiat Chrysler that um, that I guess stock charts don't capture is he got a lot of money back in big special dividends and things. Um, yeah, I mean even right up to I think twenty nineteen, even you know seven years into the investment, um, he got about fifteen percent of whatever the stock price at the time was. So whatever that was on his cost basis would have been larger again. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm pulling it up. It's um. Oh, I had it just just now. Um, yeah, it said uh, it re- he returned his entire. What was it? Sorry, I, I think he returned almost his entire fiat investment in dividends alone. Is is what uh, is what I was saying? Um, yeah, just from yeah, fiat. And, yeah, and the the investment thesis to me was always really interesting. Like. Um, they had a they had a superstar CEO at the time, Sergio Marchionne, and mm-hmm. um, Sergio was you know in twenty yeah twenty twelve thirteen, he was saying in twenty eighteen because they launched this five year business plan. He said in twenty eighteen, we're going to earn I forget the exact numbers, but eight dollars a share or something like that, and the stock's trading at six or eight. So you know, Papraj is sitting here saying, well, um, you know, all the analysts are saying they're still only going to be earning like one or two dollars a share and Sergio is telling me they're going to earn eight and I I like Sergio and I trust Sergio and if they can you know if it works then it's going to be a P of one on you know five years out earnings and right you, you know growing well-managed companies producing a lot of cash don't typically trade at one times earnings so, so um, that that was sort of a fairly simple investment thesis but I, I really like that approach yeah well one thing I remember him saying so he was trying to figure out, okay, what can I learn from, you know, selling? At first, he said it was a mistake to not sell when when Sergio kind of left left the company. Um, but then, you know, after the rebound, after the pandemic, I, I think I heard him say, you know, it was a mistake not to hold on. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, you you can't have it both ways, Monish. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah, I think that I think the recovery was far quicker than he'd ever imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yep. a lot of An embarrassment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, auto stocks, besides Tesla, <laughs> trade at low multiples for good reason. Like, there's a lot of operating leverage in there, and yep. you can go very, from earning thin profit margins, margins to yeah. yeah, very negative margins quite quickly. So until broke to bankrupt, until the government steps in and bails you out. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, you guys might know this, but I th- I think that um, I think the only two auto companies to never go bankrupt are like Ford and Tesla. Ford. 
Yeah. Well, Tesla's something new, but Ford had, yeah, yeah. Ford's been American companies. Yeah. 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 Uh, GM got their crazy. infamous bailout in the financial crisis. Um, and that that's like a whole bunch of subsidiaries right there. Um, so yeah, For, Ford's pretty much it, which is actually super impressive. Like you got it. You got to tip your cap to that. Um, Cause it's been well over a hundred years and no bailouts. So good for them. It's built Ford tough guys. Right. Yeah. The F-150 has <laughs> uh, carried them. <laughs> Most popular car in the world, if I'm not mistaken, is a Ford pickup truck. Wow. You guys, you guys don't think it's Ford Industries carrying them where people like buy the wrong stock and all that? You guys familiar <laughs> with that? Yeah, right. That exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or simply got that problem. Or what was that? What, Zoom, what Zoom is stock? Ford Industries, Tom? Do you know? Uh, I th- Jeez, you put me on the spot. I think they do like, I want to say they do like like cell phone parts or something, cell phone okay. components. Uh, but the oh, ticker that symbol sounds, is that FORD. That, that sounds familiar. I, I think you're right, but I, yeah. I, but I can't be certain. <laughs> mm. Anyway, shall we dive into some questions? Let's get into the questions. Yeah. I got a couple of people in the chat mentioning horse head holdings. Oof, painful. Let's just let's just give a disclaimer that Monish Prabhai is very mortal and uh, definitely has had his share of um, disaster trades. But I mean, that's going to come in a in a long career of investing, no matter who you are. You're gonna you're gonna have some losers for sure, and he's had um, his share too. Am I remembering correctly that Phil Town was in horse head holdings as well? Yep. He uh, yeah he averaged down almost all the way to zero he was oh, fine so, uh, <laughs> there, there's actually a he, he's actually been quite open about that like i found mm. phil town doesn't talk about a lot of his stock holdings but he did a full podcast episode breaking down what happened with horsehead so if anyone's interested in that it's probably a couple of years old at this point but uh-huh. it's it's very good to kind of explain yeah. the original investment thesis and then yeah, <laughs> what ended up happening I think, I think they were optimistic right towards the end that, you know, the promoter would not liquidate the entire company, right? Is it? Yeah. I mean, the so one of the key parts of the investment thesis was that Horsehead. Uh, so it sort of links in with like Graftech. So Graftech does electric arc furnace um, or they make the electrodes, right? So um, those graphite electrodes go into electric arc furnaces for steel production and then that basically throws off a lot of this like zinc dust basically and Horsehead were taking that dust and turning it into um, relatively pure zinc that they could then sell as a commodity. That was like Horsehead's business. Um, and a big part of the investment thesis was basically they're building out this new plant which is going to expand production quite a bit and the plant just kept getting delayed and delayed and costing more and more money and then um, one day they just declared bankruptcy is how I understand it just because <laughs> well yeah i mean there's a lot of um i think guy spear guy spear was also in horsehead and as i understand it guy spear and phil town and some others have um been in some fairly drawn out court cases trying to i think trying to sue management and that sort of stuff for like not disclosing information and things yeah i i don't i don't know anything like don't take my word on that stuff but <laughs> that's my that's my <laughs> i mean i believe it it seems it seems like kind of hard to believe that that like that many like well-respected investors would be buying into it as it's falling without there being some mm-hmm. merit to what they're saying. Um, unless there was something, yeah, that just like was totally not disclosed and you got some fraud going on yeah. potentially. I just got curious. Yeah. What was the skin in the game situation there at Horsehead Holdings? Like, yeah, that's a good question. 
Yeah. There's, there's a lot of questions to, to be raised by, by that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is what the court cases are for, I'm sure, if those are going on. Yeah, and I guess like the Pabrai did that did that study of looking at famous investors' mistakes, right? Number one culprit for blow-ups was debt, and this was yeah. an, another one to add to that long list. So always yeah. you can't go bankrupt without debt, theoretically. Well, I guess you could on mm. all tax debt is a form of debt, but yeah, you can yeah. try. Yeah, it's, a, it's like it's like sto- it's like stalling an automatic transition car, a transmission car. Like technically, it's possible, but it requires a quite a bit of skill. To, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, to do that's, that. that's well said. That's well said. I like that. Uh, oh yeah, how how would you even do that? <laughs> it's Very like carefully, rip- Jack. Yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> It looks like uh, they got they got something back in court uh, from a couple of comments yeah, okay. here, but not not. They probably weren't satisfied at the end of the day. I oh no, imagine. no! This it's that's and plus that's the whole the whole game is endless appeals and oh. settlements and new people and yeah, it just takes forever. Mm-hmm. As someone uh, on that side, not in litigation, but <laughs> it's uh it's part of the system. For mm-hmm. better or for yeah, worse, prob- probably soaks up a lot of that like last slither of equity pain. Oh, totally. I mean, the, 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 what's the saying? Like the lawyers always win, like it does like, because they're on both sides, <laughs> like, like mm. and then they take the fee first. Like yeah. there's all, there's all these rules in the bankruptcy code, just to get on a slight tangent um, that like, say that the administrator and like the attorneys get paid first, like, um, or out of the proceeds of the bankruptcy, like they, they have like a higher priority than a lot of other people, which is like not surprising. They make the laws, right? Of yeah, course. Lawyers, lawyers <laughs> tend to make the laws and they tend to protect they themselves. They know the law. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they know because they wrote it. So <laughs> anyways, that was a little that was a little cynical. Sorry. Sorry to my fellow attorneys out there. Anyways. So we got a question we got. about about Baba for Pabrai and the um, if he's bought more below 228. So we know he bought more in the second quarter, right? Uh, and the low in the second quarter was around 206. So it's anybody's guess where he bought. He might have gotten it for as low as 206. He's so he got 12% of the portfolio, is it? And he may be buying more. Uh, last yeah. I looked, it was nine, but it, it may have changed since then. Can't imagine it would have gone up, though, since Baba's just been tanking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he surely is maxed out now. Like he limits himself to ten percent positions yeah. in the fund, right? Yeah, one would think. <laughs> I got. There's a question. Um, there's a question about Alibaba, just because we mentioned it. It was towards the beginning of the uh, stream. Mm. Do you think it's poor management for Alibaba to have hoarded so much cash over the years instead of doing share buybacks? Well, I mean, in hindsight, now that we're seeing they have to surrender a bunch of cash or what have to or are being uh, encouraged to, whatever you want to say. Um, but is it poor? I mean, it's hard to argue um, against like saving, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they have a fair bit of net cash, but it's not like... Half yeah, it's not ludicrous. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what Gray thinks about Berkshire's cash buy if he thinks yeah, Alibaba right. has a lot of cash. Or, or Apple. Or that's like, what I thought Apple. about, yeah. Berkshire. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think, like, there is, there's obviously an opportunity cost to holding any cash. That's for any company. Um, but then when you have no cash, you're increasing risk quite a bit too. Um, mm-hmm. So 
you know, it's, it kind of just depends on like the position of the business, the temperament of management, you know, what the longer term goals are. Are they trying to be aggressive or are they just trying to like protect? So it, it totally, I think it totally depends on, on like what the, what the goals are. And, uh, it seemed like a, I don't know what an appropriate amount of cash was, but it didn't seem ludicrous by any means. Given yeah, and it's not, um, yeah. And I've also got so many subsidiaries. Like I, I'd have to understand more about how the accounting works, but I wonder if a lot of that cash sits around at different subsidiaries they've got also. That's like, what I would imagine. I, yeah. I don't think they've got just a pile of cash at headquarters that they've got nothing to do with. <laughs> that they yeah. sit on like couches yeah. made of cash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question though. I think it, it really raises the question of like opportunity cost. Um, I think if they, uh, if they had like, maybe like, um, it's, it's really a good question of like how much debt does the company have? Um, the more debt you probably want to have some more reserves to weather a storm. Um, but at the same time you could potentially pay down that debt too, depending on how much it is. So lots of good questions yeah. about like company cash. Yeah, I mean, if you if you go to Japan, there's some pretty crazy situations over there <laughs> yeah, with hoarding right. cash. That's an entirely different story. But I don't I don't think we're at Jap- Japan levels yet. Yeah, Fr- Frank's covered Nintendo quite a bit recently, and the same sort of deal have a ton of cash relative to their uh, to their um, uh, like balance sheet. Mm-hmm. All right, what else we got here? Anyone do a DCF on racist or any sort of evaluation work? Brad, I know you've been probably digging quite a bit. Any, um, any, any, any good places to start is probably a good question. I know, I think you were trying to find English versions of disclosures recently. Yeah, I was, I was able to find uh, a good resource for that. Um, no, I've, I've been looking at it more in terms of like a net asset value compared to, to market cap. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I haven't done a DCF on races. Because it's mainly real estate, right? Yeah, that's right. And and like the cash flows, I, I, we we kind of talked about it a while back, but usually cash flows kind of caked into valuation, present day valuation, anyways. So unless you have lofty growth projections, like you know, it's it probably makes more sense to look at the present value, anyways, um, or like the liquidation value was kind of your starting point. That's what provided for a number of these investments. So yeah, it's a good place to start for sure. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm seeing all these like comments on our joke session, like cringe. <laughs> yeah. What's your guys' take on on Naspers and Process for Pabraya? Under what conditions would those be required to be disclosed, and under what conditions would we? Are we just not going to see those those holdings unless he writes about it in his letters, and someone has access to those that we know? Mm, you'd have to look at the rules on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, I guess, for NASPERS. And, yeah, and I, don't I don't know yeah. what they are. Right. And, and, I don't and surely even if Pabrai put his whole, his whole fund in NASPERS, he hasn't got the firepower to warrant like a buying a big percentage of the company. No. I wouldn't have thought. What's the market cap on NASPERS? It's pretty large, isn't it? Because it's like a third of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange or something crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> It was around twenty three percent of the total exchange, but yeah. it's a lot less now. Yeah, right. I know process is around hundred billion. Yeah. Seventy one billion market cap for Naspers. For so, Naspers, like yeah, he he needed to put everything in there to. But yeah. that, so it, he, he'd have he'd have one he'd have one percent if he put the whole fund in it. Yeah, which 
Jack, where are you getting the 71 billion number from? Is it Google Finance? Or? Yeah. I think that number is wrong. Even see, for Proofs, the number is wrong. I see 66 for Naspers in uh, ticker. Yeah, because they had the share swap and because of that, right. a lot of the um, yeah, websites have not updated it. Yeah. So, huh. yeah. yeah, I guess it's you're big anyway. Yeah, in any event, it is big, but <laughs> good catch though. Yeah. I didn't I didn't notice that. Um, you're right. I think he's most likely gonna buy into Tencent directly, kind of like what Aswat um Damodran has done, right. rather than go through Naspers or if he does buy into Tencent. <clears throat> I see um, SC358's given us some advice on um, how to stall an automatic car as well. <laughs> all right. all, all, all reliable. There you go. The torque converter fails. Well, uh, well, how would you, the more how you would know. you, how would you get it to fail? Like, yeah, that's what we need to know here. <laughs> it's mm. the how. Like, okay, that well, we're a step closer now. <laughs> do, do we, like, want, do sure we want to be you, a step closer? Yeah. Do you bang it with something? Do you, do you, do you? Press the pedals in a particular order. There's only two of them in a automatic. Can you tell we're not? Can you tell we're not mechanics? Yeah. <laughs> Is it obvious? <laughs> On an automatic, you gotta like trick the computer too. Uh, that's another way. Can you can you code it? <laughs> Mess up the transmission computer, or whatever the automatic's using. Jack, can you pull up this one from Manu? Where is it? Manu, Manu, Sharma. It's very recent. You gotta scroll down. Very, oh, yep, there he is. All right. Why is diversification while keeping, why is diversification while being highly selective for value considered diversification? Um, it should reduce volatility while converging on the average expected return. Um, I think it's more of like a circle of competence, sort of Sim like a simplified way to say, like, stick to your to your knowledge base. Kind of yeah. The way I'm reading highly selective for value here is that, you know, maybe he's using some mechanical filters to try to figure out if, if a company is, um, you know, cheap. Right. But sure. That's, uh, not necessarily, um, a great way to go about it. Yeah. I, I I'd have to check the research, but I think once you get North of, uh, yeah, I think once you get north of like 10 stocks, you get something like 80% of the diversification benefits or something like that. I'm not sure if you guys have heard. Or or yeah. every, every study says something different, but yeah, it's like, it right. seems like kind of a consensus is like 15 to 20 is where you yeah, get like yeah. most or the vast majority of what you get. Well, um, so yeah. my question is, if you want to be diversified, why not just have the ultimate diversification and buy an index? Like as value investors, we don't want to be diversified. We want to be exposed to companies that are great investments and actually get those those outsized returns, right? Well, well, you can still that that's if you want to go like kind of maximalist. There's something to be said about like, let's say you have fifty percent of the portfolio in a super diversified you know ETF, but then the other half is where you get kind of your delta on the market, and that's super concentrated. So there's like you could still do it kind of both ways. You're not going to be necessarily as high as like, you're just trying to go super hardcore with, with value. But I mean, there's, there's also value in being able to sleep at night if you can't stomach that. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so like, I think there's something to be said there. Um, as long as you understand that, like, if you own the market, you're not going to beat the market. Um, so you got to create your Delta somewhere else. 
right? So to me, the converging on the average expected return, like what is yeah, that? Yeah, right, right, right. It's like, but you're also limiting volatility potentially and theoretically your risk, like depending on, on like what your advantage is. Um, Give like, me more volatility, please. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right. But um, it, it, it kind of depends on your situation, obviously. Yeah. Like what's most appropriate it depends on your competency, depends on like, how liquid your your funds are? Do you need them? Like you know, there's a lot of considerations to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I wonder if what he might be saying is like, if you found say 15 or 20 really attractive opportunities, like if you were to buy that entire basket, surely you'd still get good returns if they all are equally attractive. But that's um, you maybe get a little less volatility. I'm not sure if that's maybe it's more, maybe it's more the situation where let's say you have a few winners, you have like three holdings or something really concentrated and one of them takes off and now it's like 80% of your portfolio, but it still has really good prospects for growth in the future. Do you want to stick with that or do you want to diversify a little bit? I think, um, uh, who, who did that? Um, you sell, what you do is you sell Amazon and you buy ASOS. Right, that's a that situation. R- right, or, or you sell half of Amazon. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. You go. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> what, what's his name? It's slipping. Nick um, Sleep. Nick, Nick Sleep. Sleep. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, like, it could be that sort of situation. And would you really call that diversification if, like, it's something that extreme? So, like, it kind of depends on how concentrated we're talking. Are we going from ten to fifteen holdings, or three to five? You know. As the uh, the impact is going to be a lot different in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, I think it only becomes diversification if you're, you know, settling for less attractive returns just to, you know, for the sake of diversification. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's like this is very personal preference. I mean, um, it, it is. It really some is. people are going to be comfortable with three stocks and um, and a lot more volatility. And I, I, I you know, I've heard Buffett say something to the effect of um, I'd rather have like a lumpy 12% than a smooth 10% or smooth 8% or something like that. And sure. some people would prefer the smooth 8%. So it's just. Right. Yeah. Whatever that's you well prefer. said. That's a good, that's a good way to wrap that one up. <laughs> well said, Tom. I like this one here. Any thoughts on how Terry Smith is able to find value in high PE stocks? What a timely question. Um, so my understanding, I did a, a bit of a dive on Terry Smith. It looks That's like so timely. It is right. Us some content. Um, Check it out after this stream, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the way he ascertains value is uh, he looks at free cash flow yield. So he compares the free cash flow of the business to the market cap. Now, when you look at what he's paying for companies versus like the S&P 500, what the average free cash flow yield is there, he's paying more. Okay? He's paying up for great businesses, but the, how great the businesses are outweighs the, the bit that he's paying up for them. That's, that's sort of his, his, uh, his framework for it. And I love... He, he goes back to this Charlie Munger quote a lot, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it goes something like, you know, if you have a business that has a return on capital of 6% and you get it at a huge discount, and he's actually run the math on this, uh, over a long period of time, you're not going to do much better than 6% on that investment. Um, 
And if you get a company with the return on capital of 20% and you pay up a bit for it, you know, over decades, maybe you get 18% instead of the 20%. So, you know, because he holds for such a long time, uh, it's okay to pay up a little bit for these great businesses. That's, that's sort of how he operates. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have my, any, my, any thoughts on that? Yeah. My only pushback on that is, um, you know, it, it's, it's easy in hindsight in hindsight to identify great businesses. But you've got to be right. Gonna you've got to be right. Free, yeah, you've got to be right for a long time. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. You know, if you buy something at three times, if you buy Stuart and Stuart and Enterprises, right? You you've got to be right for two years. You don't have to be right, have to be right for twenty years, like you do if you Good buy point. Amazon or something. You know. So. And fund size is very important too. Like the bigger the fund, the universe of opportunities that would actually move the needle. Obviously, we've talked about that before. That it decreases a lot. Um, and typically like what's left over is a bunch of giant companies. And if you're going to buy a giant company, like you'd probably want the best ones. Cause like at that point, it's kind of like a binary decision between good and bad giant companies, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. His, the average company in his portfolio has been around for like 90 years. <laughs> so he's really trying to you know? find companies that can't be disrupted. Right. And it, they've proven that, I mean, no company, every company can be disrupted, but he's trying to minimize that possibility right. as much as possible. I like it. Yep. Good deal. Let's get a couple more in and uh, got some good questions in here today, as we often do. Butter up the audience. Like from Clayton, our, our, our man who almost. Uh, Swiped the uh, the joke competition <laughs> at the beginning almost <laughs> with his cheeky little comment about um, Kathy Wood. Uh, do you all have a portion of your accounts in index funds? We we're just talking about diversification, um, i.e., an insurance policy against being a terrible value investor. I mean, I'll start. I definitely do um, in my retirement accounts mainly. Uh, in the event that I suck at real estate investing, everything blows up. I suck at picking stocks. Like I'll have something, and then in that case, my uh, uh, my worst case scenario is, you know, everyone else's normal scenario, right? Like that's my thinking. Um, uh, and even if that means my like maximum long-term returns won't be as high if I actually am a great investor. Well, I mean, whatever. At that point, I'm a great investor, right? So I've already got a, a bunch of money, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, is it is it a heads I win, tails I don't lose much sort of deal? Maybe with, when you have kind of a backup portfolio like that. Or I don't know if I'm thinking about that the right way. Anyways, what about you guys? Yeah, all of my, um, so our retirement accounts in New Zealand are called KiwiSaver, um, which I contribute 3% of my salary to and my employer matches that. So effectively 6% is kind of sunk into that. And that's just indexed. Uh Um, Yeah, I do not have anything in index funds, but I am I'm giving no. myself, well, no, no, I, I'm not going to poo poo index funds. I think okay. they're, they're smart. Um, I'm giving myself uh, an amount of time, like a chunk of time to see, okay, can I do this? And once that clock hits midnight, if, if the numbers show that I can't do it, I am happy to just invest in index funds for the rest of my life. Or the magic formula, if that pans out, right? So, right. 
Do you, do you have a good amount? Of, uh, I forget how much cash, like percentage-wise, you have laying around because that could be kind of its own hedge too. Um, if you have a significant amount there, yeah, it really, it, it, uh, it probably varies changes right? a lot. But um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't really see that as sort of an index fund equivalent kind of thing. But no, no, but it just in like you know. Cash isn't well unless we get hyperinflation, which however you want to weigh that. Cash <laughs> don't isn't jinx gonna us, like, Jack. Don't yeah, jinx ca- us. Cash isn't shouldn't like you know have a negative massive return. Um, right. So, yeah. Your magic about, formula portfolio is doing well though. It is so far. Yeah. yeah. Brad's I mean, picking the right been, ones. It's only been like a year and a half, so I, I can't can't judge it much at this point. But how about you, Karan? Are you a closet indexer? <laughs> I have a bit of money in Berkshire Hathaway, so that's my version of index fund. So just gotcha. keep some money okay. aside. That's fair. Sure. I, I have a good amount there in my active portfolio. Um, not huge, but um, yeah. And cool. you could sort of call like Pershing Square. It's not not an index, kind but but there's like, but there's like there's like a decent amount of holdings within the holding. So it's like you know, um, that's a good point. There are other ways to get diversification beyond just in like true indexes. Um, right. Yep. Anywho, you got a question that that hyperinflation comment just reminded me of a Charlie Munger quote. Um, mm-hmm. I was just trying to remind myself of it. Uh, he says, he says, if I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm sure it was such a dry man. delivery too, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, so like good. pissed off. He so always good. sounds really pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, right after saying something about how like, you know, Robin Hood is the bane of all existence. And then mm-hmm. he just like says something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Charlie. What a guy. Charlie, all right. How about one more? Um, one more. Oh, we got to say hi real quick to after dinner investor. He popped in. Fair enough. Hi, uh, hi, uh, uh, Jack, Jack, Jackson, Jackson, right? Jonathan, something yeah, like that. Jonathan, right? That's his name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Car- you know, I don't know. Is this one from Karthik when we want to dive into? It's kind of more like an entrepreneurial. Oh, yeah. That no, that, that's interesting. Would you ever go one hundred? We should do that as a topic on the live stream. Okay. One company good. I like that. So, oh, but, but no cheating, no cheating, and doing like a like a Pershing Square or a, a Berkshire, which is like, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, no cheating. Uh, Tom's pissed. We we lost him. Would you ever go yeah, see you guys some lady. one company? <laughs> I, I like the comment. Like a proper business owner, I would kind of push back a little bit there because hmm. often, like what business owners do, like Bezos isn't all into one. It's not like. His holding in, a- in Amazon is all just retail. It he has AWS. He's or diversified. I mean, right? Those aren't those aren't examples of that. Yeah, right. So it's like, yeah, they own their business and they like they have skin in the game. They're they're paying attention to it. They're looking for ways to improve it. But it sounds as though they're not diversified. Um, and they don't and they own multiple companies within their major holding. So right. it's like I think the I think the entrepreneur's ultimate goal or just the business owner in general is to defend their income. After growing it, uh, growing it typically requires concentration. But then at some point, you switch more defensive and, and diversify a bit to defend it. Um, or you just run out of steam in that one idea and got to find other avenues for growth if you're still trying to grow it. 
because um, there's only so many people that will buy, you know, books online, for example, then you got to move to something else and, and keep going. But no, I think it's a great idea. Let's take this to the next episode and, and next come episode. Up. We'll, we'll we each, right we'll now? Each, yep. We're each going to come up with one. This is a good, this is a good prompt though. I, I like it. Yeah. Um, but, but how to not cheat? <laughs> my 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 knee jerk reaction is like cheat. a market gap, you know, limit. Ooh. You can't have any company bigger than oh, how many billions? Or are we even going over a billion? <laughs> Tom, ten billion. I see. Below ten. Ten. Okay. Ten. Ten. Is we'll, we'll 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 take we'll we'll figure out the details offline. But yeah, yeah okay. it's a good topic. I like. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Kind of like a, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you throw the house down on? That's not, you know, an index fund in itself. That's right. a good one. Right. Does it have to be at, at current prices or just if the price yeah, was that's right? A, kind of thing? Oh, yes, the price whatever you, if the price is whatever you wanted, you know, you could pick anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd buy Apple if the market cap was a dollar. How about that? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll buy, I'll buy Apple. <laughs> I'll buy anything if it's like negative a million dollars. I get paid to, to, take, to take it. <laughs> like, you know. Oh boy, we're going off the rails here, fellas. Yeah, we are. It's getting late here in Chicago. Um, yeah, well, that's a good one to end on. Uh, this will mm-hmm. be a good conversation for the future, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Karthik. Mm-hmm. You always have some good stuff in the comments too. So thank you for your support as always. Truth. Um, all right. Well, um, that was a, that was a fun one. we got some jokes in. Uh, some some yeah. great, some not great. <laughs> can we, still can we make the sound effects like a regular thing, Jack? Yeah, that I, was think great. I think we could. I think we could. We got to come up that. with some different ones. Mm-hmm. Maybe like Charlie quotes, but like or something. Oh, would that yes. be a good one to do? Let us know if you got any. Uh, if you guys have any ideas for sound effects we could use, um, leave them in the comments after this goes uh, goes into a video form, not live stream form. <laughs> any any sound effects you'd like to see in future episodes? We'll try to think of some because uh, that would be kind of fun. Or if you got any uh, holdover jokes you want us uh, to potentially show, um, we'll, we'll, we'll give uh, some. If, if we find some good ones, we, we might uh, display those more regularly. If, if you guys think of any, I think that would be kind of fun. Oh, Luis says, Tom's. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Tom's deadlift. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I can find something. I'll, I'll have some gym. videos somewhere. Oh gosh. All right. That was good. Thank you, everyone. Be sure to smash that like button, helps us out a lot. Um, we're well over 2,000 subs now, which is fantastic. On our way to 3,000, compounding as always. Um, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you enjoyed this, if you want to see more episodes, put out new uh, a new show every single week, it's about the same time every single week. I, I think we've only had one or two that weren't the same time, so it's always about this time wherever that is uh, in whatever country you are from. Uh, so yeah, till next time, everyone. Take care. <laughs>